Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Jennifer Huckleberry. Jennifer is a litigation associate in Foley's Houston office. In our discussion, Jennifer reflects on growing up in San Diego, California, and her decision to attend California Polytechnic State University at San Luis Obispo, as well as Baylor University School of Law. But as is the case for a number of guests on the path and the practice, her journey between college and law school wasn't exactly a straight line. Jennifer reflects on the four years she spent working in finance before attending law school. She discusses why it was that she decided to no longer focus on banking or financial accounting. And she also reflects on how the transition to law school was a bit rough because she'd been trained to think differently. I get her to talk about how Foley and Lardner comes onto the scene and also why she was attracted to litigation despite the fact that she has a resume that may read like someone who'd be more interested in corporate. And I also get her to give a ton of great advice, particularly to new attorneys, on how to ramp up and the mindset to have as you are learning to be a practicing lawyer. Finally, we end our discussion with Jennifer giving fantastic advice on the importance of staying true to yourself. Jennifer, welcome to The Path and the Practice. I'm so excited to have you here. And let's just start how I always start these things, which is by asking you to give your professional introduction. Thank you, Alexis. I'm a litigation associate with Foley and Lardner in the Houston office. Thank you so much. And you didn't say your full name, so I'll say your full name. You're Jennifer Huckleberry, so that everybody's clear as they're listening. And now, Jennifer, where did you grow up? Where are you from? I grew up in San Diego, California, and I lived there for quite a bit, went to college there, worked there, and then moved to Texas later on in my career. All right. There's no way you're going to be on this show and get away with just summarizing a lot of your life in just 10 seconds. We have to unpack that a bit. (laughs) So I want to know what it was like growing up in San Diego. Let's say I found you in like late elementary school, middle school. What was life like? What were you into? Sports, hobbies? Tell me more. I loved sports. So I'm one of four children and I'm a middle child and my entire family loved sports. So my mom was a marathon runner. My dad loves sports and all my siblings love sports too. So we were either actually playing sports or watching someone else play sports or doing homework or spending time with each other. But um, we were very, you know, sports oriented. And very active. Very active. And that was really conducive for San Diego. Now, I have to ask you to get specifics because, yeah, you say San Diego. People are like, were you surfing? Like, what what sort of things were you involved in? So I liked soccer, uh, basketball. I'm a runner, so I competed in track, some long-distance running as well, too, a little bit of volleyball. I surfed a little bit, but I'm not as strong of a swimmer as I'd like to be, so that was more of a secondary hobby. It's so funny. Growing up, um, particularly in high school and college, I spent a little bit of time in San Diego because even though I, as a lot of listeners to this show know, was you know raised in Wisconsin, my dad actually moved to San Diego when I was in high school. And so I would visit him uh, many times a year. And all I knew how to do was drive to the mall and to the beach. That was it. I didn't know how to do anything else when I was there. <laughs> uh, and so for those who don't know, I think you know San Diego, I think, is known for its weather in particular. It is. It's it has really phenomenal weather. So even, you know, it's funny because people complain if it's in the high 60s it's being cold and if it's in the 80s it's hot. So it was an adjustment coming to Texas. I know, I'm just laughing because I definitely experienced that where people are like it's going to be 55 tomorrow. Brr. And I get it. You know, the houses aren't insulated in the same way. I'm convinced some maybe didn't even have heat, but I was just like, "Really?" 
55. This is cold. Um, well, and I have to ask, you said you're one of four. So tell me, tell me birth order. Where, where do you fall within that? And, you know, brothers, sisters, tell me more. So I have an older sister who's five years older. Uh, she's an elementary school teacher. She teaches fifth grade in San Diego and she's also an author. So she started publishing books when she was in high school. So she's very talented at writing and she's an excellent author. Uh, my older brother is a couple years older than me and he works for a hedge fund. So he works in finance and then it's me. And then I have a younger brother who's a few years younger and he works in accounting and both brothers are in Texas. So we're talking like, you're like middle child. I am. But, and we'll see, I don't know, we'll see if that shows up as you explain your, your path. <laughs> Just interested in exploring that. So tell me about, say, high school and that process of deciding college. Like, how did you decide and where did you go? So I went to college at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And I decided to go to Cal Poly. I loved the city of San Luis Obispo. I don't know if, have you ever been to San Luis Obispo? I have, I have not been and I know nothing about it. So um, feel free to expand on that. It's a college town. So you're either usually a college student or you're probably retired, but it's beautiful. It's right near the beach and you have the mountains and it's really, uh, it's a really cute small town and they have farmer's market. So it's very outdoorsy and the school itself is really great. I knew I wanted to do finance, study finance, and they have a great business program. And I really liked Cal Poly because they're very practice-oriented, and you get to focus on your major-specific classes right away. So you don't really have to take very many general education classes. From my very first year, I was already taking finance-specific classes. And I really liked that and the practice component of Cal Poly. My older sister went to Cal Poly, so I knew a little bit about the school because I'd visit her and knew about the way they structured the classes. So I had some insight there, and my grandpa had gone to Cal Poly as well, too. So I knew that they have you, they structure their classes in a way where you're actually working on real finance projects with real companies so that you actually are more comfortable when you go out into the field and start practicing. Well, and you just answered um, one of my questions because, and I don't have extensive exposure to the colleges and universities in California, but, and this may be a little bit of a stereotype, I feel like there are so many University of California at, like name, name the schools, <laughs> just so, so many schools. Um, particularly when I would visit San Diego, by the way, there was like UCSD, USD, UC, like just all these, all these different letters. So it was interesting how Cal Poly got on your radar. But then also you said you knew you wanted to focus on finance. How did you know that? So I come from a family who's very math oriented. <laughs> my mom is less so, she's more creative. And some of that from my mom just totally skipped me. Um, she's very artsy. And I know you are. <laughs> you have some of that. So uh, yeah, I have a deep appreciation for that. And also know to a certain extent, I should stay away from that. But uh, so my family background is more math and science based. So even growing up, I, I was involved in student body. So ASB and when other people would be doing you know, decorations for the dances. They actually asked me not to do the decorations. They were like, sorry, they were like, Jennifer, no, 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 not you. Don't touch that. Don't yes, touch that. Exactly. <laughs> and I was good at math and statistics. And so instead, my job and responsibility was to do financial models for how many tickets and how many much money we needed to sell during the fundraisers to be able to purchase the different decorations, what we could afford and how we were going to budget that out. And so at the time, I didn't really realize it for the blessing it was because, of course, you know, you want to be with the group <laughs> and not, no, you can't do decorations, period, like do the, do the math and the financial modeling. But it actually, that was what I was good at and I liked it. And I think, you know, from that point on, you sort of start to realize this is what I'm good at and maybe I'm not good at some of the decorations and some of those other talents, but you know, I, I'm going to embrace it because I actually don't really enjoy doing the decorations. There you go. You find your lane, you run, and you probably saw my face when you mentioned financial model because I just had this scenario of your like like 15-year-old Jennifer being like, I have run 
three models on what what scenarios we can anticipate based on the following number of attendees at this price point for the tickets. <laughs> exactly, though. But that's what it was. And okay, well, you want this decoration? Well, then we're going to have to raise this much money. And so there were different scenarios. So if you want to have an outstanding dance and decorations, <laughs> we're going to need to raise this much money. But if we don't get this, so we had different scenarios based on how much money we'd raise and best case scenario and worst case scenario. But I really enjoyed it and I loved it. And so it took me a little bit of time to really, I think, come to terms with that and be like, I love it. it. That's okay. Just accept it. It's okay. Yeah, this is what I'm into. Yes. Um, And it worked out well. So, I mean, but that started to reveal to me where my interests really lied and what were my passions and what was going to be a successful career for me long term. Yeah. Well, I love you sharing that. I, and I swear, I say this every episode, but I do it because I know people don't necessarily listen to every episode of the show, but I really like having our lawyers talk about those interests because we are getting people listening that are in you know college. And just to see that you know, right now, and I, say, I also say this every time, you know, someone pulls your bio, they're like, here's where she went to law school. I see she's in litigation. And they, you know, wonder, were you born knowing you wanted to be a litigator? And so I just think it's really fun to show the twists and the turns and the interests that that come together to make you who you are today. And I think based on some of, you know, your bio, I think that interest in finance and your focus on it likely is still relevant in what you do. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But okay, so you go to Cal Poly Polytechnic. I don't know if there's anything to highlight there or what that adjustment was like. So maybe you could say a few words about that. And then we'll start talking about how and why you decided to go to law school. So I really loved Cal Poly. It was a great experience. And I thought it was a really fun education. I chose to do that a little bit different as well too, consistent with my history in math, I ended up choosing to take a lot of the finance classes instead with some of the engineer engineering students and math students, which helped me to get on a fast track because you could do it at an accelerated pace if you did that. So I enjoyed that. And again, it was a little bit different, but I chose to live in the dorms with a lot of the engineering and math students. So it worked out well because I was in classes with them already and it worked out well. And again, it's just more kind of finding the place. So where does law school come into play? Because right now I'm not seeing the signs. I'm seeing the engineering. I'm seeing the math. And not to say you can't do those, but how and why law school? Where does that come from? So while I have a passion for math and finance, I also have a passion for creative writing and arguing. So, and that also showed itself really early on in my life as well too. So I actually uh, love poetry and I would actually compete and like competitions for poetry and would do public speaking and from my early age. And I really loved that. That was so much fun for me. Oh my gosh. And you said you weren't creative. Okay. Maybe you can't like draw a painting, but by the way, who can? Okay. So there definitely is creativity there, but go on. It's so creativity with words, definitely mm-hmm. not with art and my handwriting is terrible, but <laughs> if I have a computer, <laughs> we're good to go. So I I loved doing that and I loved arguing as well too and just negotiating from a really early age. And so I don't think I recognized it so early on, like in elementary school, even though I loved even negotiating then. But, you know, it started to show itself more and more. And I was interested in some policy work as well too. Actually, just give a story just because I think it's a little bit amusing. But I'm a vegetarian and love all things health-related and healthy eating. So in middle school, they had they had this program that they would teach and educate all the students about how you needed to have healthy living habits and eat healthy and exercise. But then a lot of the food that they would sell at the cafeteria was not healthy. Mm-hmm. It was really unhealthy. And a lot of the students, if their parents weren't packing lunches for them, they didn't really have a healthy option even. And so I wrote a letter to the board explaining my dissatisfaction and the hypocrisy. And they ended up changing the way that they offered the food and said they offered a lot of vegetables and fruits. But what was so amusing about this, Alexis, is that this is when I was like 11 years old. That's amazing. No, no, this is, this is what's, what I'm about to tell you next, next is what I think is so funny. Is that I'm almost 30 and only a couple of years ago, I, someone reached out to me that I went to uh, middle school with and they were still upset about the fact that some of the cookies and the chips and all of that 
we're, <laughs> we're, taken, we're taken away. And they learned about like 15 years later, 15, 20 years later, that I was the one that was responsible for it. And they still hadn't gotten over that fact. That's amazing that they, for the rest of their time in school, they were like, that Jennifer took my Oreos from me or whatever it was. I just find that very amusing. But it's the things like that where I, I, I know, I, th- I thought that was very funny that after all these years that they were, that, that, yeah, that, stuff, that stuff sticks with you. But you know what? For every person who is mad the cookies were gone, I'm going to say there was someone who was happy there were fresh fruits and vegetables. And even more importantly, you really are exhibiting like that early advocacy. Like you were an advocate at 11. There it is. Well, I enjoyed it. And even if it wasn't what was popular, apparently, <laughs> I, I, I had fun doing it. So in the moment, I never realized it. But looking back, there are a lot of signs that would show yep. that I really wanted to do that. So when I actually went to Cal Poly, I actually, while I was studying finance, I wanted to go into law. So my last year, second to last year of college, I actually was studying for the LSATs and followed books and was studying while I was doing the correct regular curriculum for finance. And I applied for an internship in finance. And I showed up for the interview and they said, well, actually, we we would like you to interview for the full-time position, not the internship. And I thought, well, I was like, I think I'm going to go for it. If I want to go back and do law, I can always do that. There's mm-hmm. no reason that I can't do that. But I also love finance. And there's no reason why I can't pursue this opportunity and then do law later. So I ended up pursuing that opportunity. I ended up getting the job and enjoyed it. But I'll tell you, I never got rid of my LSAT books. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And I'm so as I'm looking at your your bio and on LinkedIn, like I can see there was what is it, how many years then was it you were working before you went to law school? So was that was it like four years or so that you were in finance or yeah, explain that to me. So I was in finance for four years. So I started off doing the financial accounting role. It was with a company with EMC, they've been acquired by Dell, but really what the program was designed to do is to train you to be able to be a manager in finance. So they would have MBA professors that would come and you would go to their headquarters in Massachusetts multiple times a year and get training and do presentations and get feedback. But really every year they'd switch you to a new office to be able to connect with different people and develop different skills and relationships. And so you did that for every single year and you'd move to a new city. And so I did that for two and a half years and then I wanted to switch because I didn't want to do financial accounting anymore. More, I wanted to do more of the hard finance, more of the banking, and which is similar, but it, it is also very different um, culture. And there's a different fundamental skill set that's involved with that as well, too. So I decided to move into banking, but it's not really a clear-cut move or a clear path to go from one to the other. So really, in order to develop that skill set, you need to know a lot of the financial modeling skills, which you know the basics from what I had done previously, but you you don't know it the same way. Even the, the styles that are used, it's just, it, it doesn't necessarily compute from one to the other. So at that point, actually, what I did is I would reach out on LinkedIn to lots of different people and people I knew, but people on LinkedIn as well who were in that space and asked, look, do you have 30 minutes for lunch? Can I take you out to lunch and just ask you some questions? And during those meetings, I would ask them about job opportunities, but also ask them, look, do you have, I know you train new finance associates. Do you have models that you can share with me that, you know, they don't have any proprietary information. They're just Mm -hmm. for training purposes, but that you can send to me so that I can be practicing on my own. And so I would get some of these and it's good to have different ones from different firms because each have different style and they have different strengths and weaknesses and it helps develop your skills. So while I was working full time, I was doing that on my own, meeting with people and training. For that transition to make the transition. And by, by the way, like bravo for the, just, I mean, the hustle, right? The, the reaching out to people, the having the presence of mind to review the models in advance. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. So then were you eventually able to make that transition? I was. It it was it's challenging to make that transition, um, but, but I was able to make it. And it was a little bit of an abrupt transition. So I lived in San Diego. I moved to Cal Poly, which is in San Luis Obispo, it's in like in Central California. And then I worked in Seattle, Washington, and then worked in Northern California. And then 
in banking, I moved back to San Diego. So I was jumping all around. The joke was always I kept moving south and I was going to end up in Mexico. There you go. Because that's a lot of moves in like what, about a three-year period from what I'm hearing. It is. So it's really fun because I have friends all over. <laughs> all down the coast. <laughs> it's fun. It's actually really fun. Um, so it's like actually had a lot of offices that kind of wow. well but so, but you But like you did all this work to be able to make the transition. It sounds like you get a, a new job, presumably, doing that. But then it's not that long after that you decided to go to law school, essentially. Yes. So when I took the job in banking, I didn't know that I was going into law. Again, I kept all my LSAT books because I always wanted to be a lawyer and I never let go of that dream. But if I love what I'm doing and I want to stay stay there and see it through and knowing that I can always change, switch gears. Mm -hmm. But if I went into law, then I wouldn't want to go back into finance. That's really... an investment and a move. And once I committed to law, I wanted to see, you know, the opportunity through in finance first. So I spent time in banking. Actually, it was interesting because when I joined in banking, it wasn't just to start as an associate, it was to lead a team. So that was a very big transition because I was already ramping up on what was a new industry, but also learning how to manage. And I think while a lot of people sometimes don't always communicate is there's not really an easy way to learn that you just have to do it and build that muscle. So it was a very steep learning curve and I loved it, but I ultimately didn't feel fulfilled the way that I hoped to. I was intellectually challenged and I love my team, but there just was an X factor that was missing. I believed I would find in law. And so at that point, I decided, you know what, I think I'm going to pull out those LSAT books. <laughs> Dust them off. Yes. Dust off the LSAT Which books. I actually had to look up. I was like, are these still good? Because it's been some years. So I was like, hopefully it hasn't changed very much. I'm going to be studying for, you know, a, a ties that no longer, is, you know, really exists the way that it's presented in these books. Um, and I studied. And actually, within a few months, I, from deciding to go to law school, I was studying while I was working for the LSAT and then took the LSAT and applied. And within a few months of deciding to go to law school and starting to study, I actually um, started law school. I was not expecting you to say that. Okay, go on. (laughs) (laughs) So it was like in January that I had decided, you know what, I I, I want to pursue law. And so I started studying for the LSATs. And I took the LSATs like six weeks later. And then I applied for law schools. And then I started a few months later, like late April, early May. I had moved to Texas and started at uh, Baylor Law School. So it was it was a quick transition, but it was very exciting. And once you know what you want to do, for me especially, I don't want to wait if I'm passionate about it. Well, and you see my face because that that is a really fast transition. Does Baylor start kind of off like what a normal cycle would be versus everybody kind of starting together in September? You're able to start, like you said, in April or May? So they offered for me to start in September, but they also offered me to start in May, uh, April, May. And once I decide I want to do something, it really... Why, it's done. Why? It's already done. <laughs> well, you know, and I shouldn't find it that weird. They Michigan doesn't do this anymore, but the University of Michigan used to start a class in summer. So I actually also started law school in, I think in June, it was May or June. So technically I did that too, <laughs> but, but a little bit different. And then just tell me a little bit about how you decided on Baylor. So coming from California, I'd always wanted to move to Texas. And if you ask me specifically why, I don't know that I'd be able to articulate that for you, but sometimes there's just a gut feeling and just an interest. And I was really interested in moving to Texas. And when you switch careers, it's a good time to do that. It's harder to do that when you're within the same career because a lot of your connections are where you were already working. So it was a natural point for me to look at, if I want to make a move, this might be the the time for me to make that move. So that was one of the reasons. And I really liked it. I never went to a private school before. I was always a pub- at public schools and I am a Christian and I really wanted to go to a private Christian school. So Baylor was very attractive to me for options. It was in Texas. It was a uh, private Christian school. And I liked it that it was very hands-on experience because especially coming from a finance background, some of the areas that I thought I probably needed more development and focus 
was not so much on the analytical framework, although Baylor teaches you that as well, but it was on the oral advocacy because a lot of my time, yes, I would do presentations and that would, and writing would be a component of my work, right? Advocating for a deal or an M&A deal, whatever that might be, but it wasn't the central role. And it's not, I wouldn't say that's necessarily a strength of people who work in the finance profession as it is for lawyers. Well, a little bit, it's that I've said this before to people on the show, but it's almost like you wanted to exercise the other part of your brain a little bit more because you were, I don't, I always forget which one's the left side and the right side, but you wanted to exercise the other side. I also think it's interesting what you said about Baylor and hands-on or practical experience, but given what you were saying about California Polytechnic and why that was also desirable to you, because it sounds like that school, you know, similarly was very focused on like what's practical. So that's really interesting. And then also it just sounds like overall, you generally felt called to being in Texas, which I think, you know, that, that happens. You're just like, there's just like a tug in a certain direction. Um, so you go, you made the transition pretty quickly. What was it like for you adjusting to law school, particularly after having been out of school for a while? It was a little bit of a rough transition, probably the first month or so. I think some of it was because I was just trained differently. For example, for writing assignments, they said, you need to show your work. And so for me, I cited what rule I applied and I said the conclusion. And I was like, well, you have the facts and in finance, that's what you would do. You wouldn't, it would be insulting to somebody to go through those steps in a way because it's just, that's just not what I would do versus in law. That's, that's good legal analysis to apply each fact and why that particularly. Yep. In law and law school in particular, that's <laughs> where they really, really, I mean, not to say you don't do it in practice because you very much do, but I just, as you said that, I thought that was really funny. You probably saw my face <laughs> that how in finance, if I was to reiterate to you exactly, like, I know, keep it moving. Whereas lawyers were like, let me lay out the case and just having to kind of just think differently, essentially. And it's, and it's for a different purpose too, because you're for finance, it's for the purpose of invest investing. And so your audience is different. Really. You're, you're all moving in the same direction. You want to make money. You don't have someone who's an opponent. So it, it's just, it's different. It's a different mindset. So the way, the way, where you focus your attention was different, but that was an area where to me, that was very confusing to me at the beginning. I, because I thought I was showing my work and I, I clearly wasn't, <laughs> but I thought I was. So there were a few things like that that were, I think, just just from switching to finance to... Just calibrating. Well, and a, a couple of guests I've had on the show were engineers in a former life, and they've said something similar. I mean, it's you know, a little bit different, but just that I was used to thinking differently. I was used to studying differently. It was, you know, they gave you whatever formula and your learning was applying it over and over again, you know, versus just the way that you engage with the materials in law school. And once again, I never tire of hearing people talk about this either, because for the law students listening, I just think it can be really affirming to hear someone who's now a practicing successful lawyer say, you know, here's what I was difficult for me or how I had to adjust. Because I think when you're in it, it can feel very lonely. And you wonder if you're the only person who's dealing with this right now. I think that's very true. I mean, on the very first day, I'm the kind of person I've, I had one highlighter and one pen and I saw everyone else had like six colors of highlighters and it's been some time since I had been at school, been to school, you know, since I've been working and I was wondering, wait, had something changed? Am I feeling somehow unprepared? Why do I need six other colors? What, you know, and that, that starts to, it's, it's so silly, it's, you know, something as simple as how many highlighters and colors do you have? But especially when you're in an entirely new environment, and for me, a different state and co- completely out of my comfort zone, those small things can kind of eat <laughs> your confidence. Yes, I'm sorry. And I, I adore that you said that because I was one of those people. I can't decide if I was that person on the first day, but I definitely was that person because it was like, well, green is facts and yellow's the question and blue's the conclusion, like when marking up cases. I literally forgotten that I did that. And I'm certain I read it somewhere that, and I'm certain maybe it was like book briefing, just so if you got called on, you could quickly find stuff. But that's so funny. But it's true. Like 
also people learn differently. There's some people the colors are, are helpful for others. It wouldn't matter at all. But I think when you look around, you're like, why do they have so many different colors of highlighters? <laughs> Well, yeah, it was that. And then there were some things with citations that they would have an X. And for me, that was like, oh, that's a variable, right? And then they were saying, no, you don't, you don't put, that's not a variable. You don't substitute that for something else. So there were just a few things where at first it was like, like you said, I just need to recalibrate and just kind of shift your expectations and be a sponge. Yeah. You're retraining your brain. Yes. Now I'm curious. So how does... Foley and Lardner come on the scene. How do you get connected with the firm? So I was in moot court and my moot court partner, Stephanie McPhail, she had worked for Gardeer for 10 or 15 years as an assistant. Then she decided to go back to law school. And so Foley and Lardner, for those of you who don't know, acquired Gardeer. So I was close with Stephanie and she talked very highly of Gardeer and how they treat their employees and that she was really happy with them. And she recommended I apply. To me, that holds a lot of weight because if you look online and you research firms, it gets very overwhelming very quickly because... Yes. And, we, and they all sound the same. I say that's less than all, all of our websites look pretty similar. Yes. And they just do. And so especially someone whose opinion I trust and someone who I know, I, I think very highly of her. And so I, I trust her opinion. So I followed up on what she had recommended and I applied and for their summer program and I summered here and had a really great experience and so decided to come on full-time when I graduated. And so for you, was summering after Foley and Gardier merged or was it right around that time? I'm trying to place it in time. So it was after the merger. So she had worked before the merger and then she was in law school during the merger when we were moot court partners. And so that's when she was telling me about her positive experiences. And I am going to resist every urge I have to ask you details about your summer experience because we've there's other things I want to talk to you about. And also, if the listener's curious to hear about what it's like to summer at Foley and Lardner, I've actually had a few summer associates on the show. So check that out. But we can presume you had a good experience. Although I'm curious to what extent your summer experience affected your decision as to your practice, because we haven't gotten to how it is that now you did mention you're doing moot court. So maybe you you knew litigation was what you wanted to do. But how did you decide or how did you become a litigator? So actually, as a summer, I was in angst about whether or not to do litigation because I wanted to do corporate M&A work. I was going to say, based on a lot of things you've said, I could very much see that being a possibility as well. And because I, I felt more comfortable in that area because I reviewed a lot of the contracts. It wasn't with, it wasn't a legal review I was performing, but I would have to review those to analyze whether or not you know, for, for the financial aspect and whether or not I thought it was a good investment or not, I, w- I would review those legal documents. So I was much more comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And so it was scary to me to switch from doing something that I was very familiar with. And I'd spent years kind of developing that skill set to move into litigation. And so over the summer, I'd been, um, they, they'd said, well, you are here as a litigation associate. But I told them, I said, well, I, I want to, I'm not sure that I want to do litigation. I, I want to experience some of the corporate, especially the M&A work as well, too, because I want to know I'm, I'm a passionate person and whatever I want to do, I, I need to be passionate about it to keep me going and it fuels me. And so I got some of those, those, of those experiences and pretty quickly I learned that, yes, I was more comfortable doing that type of work, but I really loved litigation. And it was just very exciting. And the, the people that you interact with are just really fun. And they are in corporate as well on the transactional side. But there's, um, I think it's not as dynamic. And as the litigation side, and I really like the adversarial aspect, I think it just creates some of the tension that is just a natural byproduct of the litigation process. It's fun. I love that. You've just said so many things. Okay, a couple things. In case any of the law students are curious, when you join Foley as a summer, sometimes you're in a position where it's like, clearly this is where our hiring needs are going to be. So generally speaking, you're here as a summer supporting litigation. We think that's where you join because that's where we have availability. Other times in other offices, you may join the firm in a capacity of like, try things, and then we'll decide what you like and where we'll we'll slot you. So just know that's going to vary based on your office in case anyone was curious. But also what you said about it just being really important to you that you're passionate about and really love what you do. 
I recently got Scott Ellis on the podcast. And so you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. It will premiere next week. There'll be one other episode actually between your your episode and Scott's. But he talks about that as well, particularly his advice at the end is, you know, if you can be like love and be passionate about what you're working on. So I'm just going to say some words. You can reflect and then we'll, we'll move forward, I promise. But this is something that I think is very hard for law students and people in general to understand. Now, one, in many ways, this is a privilege, right? There's a lot of times in life where you just need to pay the rent and you know you can't navel gaze and decide if it's fulfilling or you're passionate. But particularly in legal, given how we serve clients and the hours that can be demanded of an attorney, you really enjoying and being curious and passionate about what you do, I think that is the fuel to keep things, because it's hard just to grind when you don't like your work, um, given how much it can demand of you. So I just, I, I adore that you raise that. I don't know if you have anything to add to it. I, I think it's really important. And I think you had mentioned about law students and you know what they're thinking about. I think as you're going through law school, that's something that's really important to ask yourself, why are you doing this? Why are you motivated and, and what's going to fuel you? Because it's not only important to decide where you end up, but there are times in law too where it is stressful and it's demanding and there are long hours. And that's what fuels you and that's what reminds you. And especially if you're nervous or you're stepping out of your comfort zone, that's really you know what anchors you and pushes you forward is reminding why you're passionate about it and why you're doing it. And it's just only going to make you so much better. So I think that's a really critical piece, not only to decide where you want to end up, but it, on a daily basis, I think it's important to keep that center. Well, and what I think is great is I've had a few guests on the show talk about how they actually really had to search to find the practice that they liked, or maybe initially in their, um, and I'm thinking actually of David Sanders right now, who's the office managing partner in DC. I just think of him as a senior corporate partner. But if you listen to his episode, he spent the first four years of his career as a litigator. But it turned out litigation wasn't for him. Or Lee Riley, another partner, talked about how as a summer associate, she realized she disliked everything she was exposed to. But her and uh, um, a fellow summer associate made it their mission to find the practice group that she would like, and she ended up in ERISA. And I think this can be actually a little bit daunting and scary for a law student to hear because you're like, should I even be asking these questions? I just want to be employed. But I think for you, and I'm certain some of that's just from the experience you had because you were a professional before law school was you mentioned, you know, I do want to try a few other things. It's really important that, you know, there's alignment. And, and I think most firms, whether it be Foley or other large firms actually really do want to accommodate you. Like there's just times where, you know, we can't immediately switch your group, but ultimately once a firm's invested in you, it's important to us as well that you like what you're doing. So I just think that's such a great thing that you raise. But so now tell me what it's like at this point, you've been at Foley for a number of years, but I'm just curious what it was like when you first started. You know, you're starting as a litigator in the Houston office. How did you learn to litigate? Like, what was that like for you? I think it's very helpful to have the summer program under your belt. Because especially at Foley, they, they treat you basically like a first year when you are a summer associate. So really, it's just a continuation of what your summer was like. You already have worked with a lot of those same people. You've already worked on even some of the same cases. And so it makes it much more comfortable. Not comfortable, but much more comfortable. <laughs> so then when you join, it's really you know, just like any new career. But I think especially with law, there's just a steep learning curve. And I'm still learning so much every single day. And a lot of that just comes with just having to accept that there's a lot that you don't know. And trusting that you're smart, you can figure it out. And the people around you are smart and can help you and are accessible to you. And they are. And so it really is, I, I think, especially when I first started, I focused a lot on bankruptcy work, actually, because of my finance background. So even though I knew I wanted to do litigation, I, I didn't get exactly to where I am now from the very from the outset. And so even with that, there was a steep learning curve as well, too. But to, to one of your earlier points, Alexis, I think a lot of people get discouraged thinking, oh, it took me some time to get to where I actually want to be. But it actually is very help. It's almost more helpful to know what you don't want to do as much as it is helpful to know what you do want to do. And there are still a lot of aspects of bankruptcy I really enjoy. But I ultimately found out that I 
like more of the adversarial aspect and I prefer win-lose over win-win. And so <laughs> that bankruptcy, a lot of things, have, you know, are negotiated and I, I really like the litigation aspect. But even though I ultimately chose to pivot and not do core bankruptcy work, now I do quite a bit of securities litigation that arise out of bankruptcy. And so I still use what I ultimately decide not to settle in and it, and it makes me valuable in this other space. So I just wanted to, to share that quickly because I do think sometimes people feel discouraged or feel like it's a loss that they spent time looking into this other area they thought they were interested in that it didn't ultimately pan out. And it's not, it actually makes you more valuable in the next space you, you choose. Well, and that was, but that was perfect because you said two things. One, I do want to talk a little bit about the mix of your practice. We'll we'll get, we'll get further into that, but you already started talking about it, but also what you said about it being a steep learning curve. I just kind of wanted to like pause right there and just let that sit, particularly for any new lawyers that are listening to this. You have probably heard that said to you so many times, but you don't necessarily know what that's going to feel like. And I think for high achieving individuals, which, you know, most people who start a large law firm are that are used to getting their series of gold stars and kind of, you know, memorizing info, it can be really hard to know that for a number of years, you're just going to be learning. You're going to be have people um, in the episode actually before this one with Justin Talbot, who's a senior patent agent, he talks about just getting something back and it's covered in red or it's just covered in track changes and understanding that that's a part of the learning process. <laughs> And keeping an open mind so that you don't, I hate to say it, but like start to feel bad about yourself because it could just be really hard. So I, it sounds to me like you came in with that perspective. Did you come in with that perspective or do you have to learn that perspective? I think it's both. I think actually having managed a team, it was very helpful coming in with that perspective because what I had told the people on my team before was, you know, I, I, I want you to take a chance and I want you to give me your opinion and your analysis and you know, I can work with wrong. I can't work with nothing. So if you give me a conclusion analysis and you share your thinking with me and it's wrong, I can, you know, train you and show you where you, you maybe miss a step or something that you, you maybe want to do differently next time. But if you don't have any, you don't put yourself out there in the first place and, and give me any thought or opinion or analysis, I can't mentor you the same way. And the people that I enjoyed working with were the people who really went for it. And if they're wrong, I, I never was bothered by that because I know they were trying and it gave me a lot to work with and they accelerated so much faster. Those are wise words. I can work with wrong, but I can't work with nothing. And there is a certain level of failing a little, failing faster, right? Like let's get this out of the way to get you to how you know this, this should be which is, sorry, that's just, I did not have that perspective, by the way, as a junior litigation attorney, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have the perspective of whomever was managing me. So I'm sitting here, I was like, that is, that is a very wise way to enter, enter the practice of law. And let's also talk a bit more about your practice. And I also, before we do actually, sorry, I wanted to mention what you said about initially you were doing some bankruptcy work. I don't know how much of that was sort of like straight bankruptcy or maybe adversary proceedings arising out of. So it was a little bit of litigation. But I think as a junior lawyer, you're also just trying to get experience. Ideally, it's in that desired practice area. But bottom line, sometimes there's just client needs and you have availability. Um, there's usually things to learn from whatever you're doing. I do think partners are sometimes like, they just got here and they say they'll only do securities fraud. And I have, you know, this is a professional liability. Why won't you work on this? You know, that's probably not a great look, by the way. <laughs> So you will learn what you like and you will grow, but it can be hard to really have strong preferences until you have some of that experience under your belt. But tell me about that. And by the way, Jennifer, I did find that you recently wrote an article for the American Bar Association related to securities fraud, which is why I said it. But how, what's your practice mix look like right now? Yeah. And I, before I get into that, I just wanted to make a comment as well, too, about what you were saying with the bankruptcy as well, too, just to encourage people as well. So I did want to do bankruptcy and I had reached out and just to encourage people to persevere and not give up on things. So when I first started, I expressed an interest in bankruptcy and I expressed an interest four or five times to the same partner before I actually got on all these cases. And then he put me on like all the cases and it wasn't, you know, you don't hound somebody <laughs> for the work, but every time you see them, you gently bring it up. I'd love to work on a case with you or, you know, I, I see you're working on this case. Can you tell me a little about it? And you keep showing interest and don't give up. You know, especially because the first time you express interest in something, they might not have a case for you to work on or they might be fully staffed or it just not might, might not be right timing. 
or you might have caught them at a bad time where they're thinking about all these things that they have to do on our cases, and that is just not something that they're willing to visit. So don't get discouraged easily and just, you know, you, you do want to take whatever work comes your way because any experience is good experience. But at the same time, if you are particularly interested in something, you, you can continue to express that interest and and continue to ask for that kind of work. So. Well, you know what's funny before you talk about your practice? It's like make it about you, right? Because you're advocating for what you want to do. But don't fully make it about you from the sense that realize this person has a full life. If you mention, if you email them and they are in the midst of trial, they're going to read that and be like, that's nice. And then 30 other emails come in and they may or may not even retain it. So you just have to remember. And I think that comes up a lot, actually, is just trying to see the perspective for the person, particularly the partners you're working with. I'm very big on thinking, I think a important part of being successful as socio is actually empathy for those you're working with. You know, we don't have time to dig into what that really means, but I think just understanding that they're busy too, (laughs) and they're not just there to only scrutinize your email or waiting for your request for work. I don't know if you have comments on that, but let's also talk about your practice mix as well. Sure, sure. No, I I completely agree with that. I just wanted to make that comment because I think some people give up easily or they might think, take it personally, they don't want to work with you. And that's not the case. And so I just wanted to say that because for those who may feel discouraged, took me four or five times and then I got all the cases. (laughs) But right now I have a general litigation practice, but quite a bit of that is securities litigation. And so where it comes into where the ABA article on securities fraud becomes relevant. But really where I found that practice is it is more of the adversarial aspect that I really enjoy of litigation. But it also brings in a lot of the finance background and experience that I have. And so it's really a perfect, happy mix between the two. And it allows me to enjoy the technical side while the creative, you know, while simultaneously enjoying the creative side and the writing and and the litigation aspect. So it's been a sweet spot for me. I love seeing the threads come together, by the way. It happens a lot in these shows. And I just, it's very gratifying for me (laughs) to see see it all come together. And um, something that may be tough for the folks like myself who went to law school, perhaps because math wasn't your favorite, is it actually is really beneficial to have some basic understandings of, I don't know if, I don't know if corporate accounting is the right term, but like you're going to most likely, depending on, you know, what sort of, particularly if you're a litigator, what type of litigator you are, these are business related disputes. There will likely be things related to accounting or numbers or spreadsheets or something. So if you're somebody who that terrifies, you may actually want to take a few classes just to know what you're looking at. I did not do that. I I wished I had because I had to learn in other ways. But also as we're winding down, Jennifer, can you tell me a little bit more about, because I'm sure there's people who are like, all right, so she's, you know, a a third or fourth year associate at Foley. So what kind of stuff are you working on? I get your subject matter, but like, what what are you actually doing day to day? It really is a mix and it really depends on what case you work on. And so it's, it, it also depends on the size of the case as well too, but it really ranges from drafting motions to taking depositions to arguing at hearings to client meetings. It's it's really one of the things I really enjoy about Foley is that I, I do feel from it early on in your career, you get some of that substantive experience and get to work with a lot of different people. I really enjoy working with people in Houston, but I also get to work with a lot of people in, nationally. And it's really fun to get to see a lot of different practices because it, it also varies by office as well, too, not just because of actual requirements by jurisdiction, but just style. So it's really fun. But so it really is a, it really is a mix. And sometimes I'm in Excel quite a bit, too. So um, when I say it changes, it's there really is quite a bit of component. Sometimes I'm actually doing math and modeling things out and coming up with budgets for things. And sometimes, you know, bringing, being brought on in a case because of my financial expertise and then sometimes it's more of this, you know, straight litigation aspect of it and arguing hearings and putting together dispositive motions. And so it, it really runs a gamut. I love it. It's that wide array of experience. And yes, I'm thinking back to you in high school doing financial modeling for the, for the dance. And now you're the, you know, go-to like, yeah, it's okay. I can pull that together for the team. Um, in contrast, that would not have been me when I was still practicing. <laughs> so thank goodness for folks like you, Jennifer. 
But so as we as we continue to wind down, let me ask you one of my like my final big question. And you've already given such great advice and insight. But overall, what what's your advice to someone who's either you know in law school contemplating their legal career, or that you know I don't know they're starting as a say a first year in, in a month or so? What would what do you recommend to them? What should they keep in mind? I would recommend keeping in mind that at the beginning of your legal career, you need to focus on the fundamentals. And there's really no substitute for that. But at the same time, I would tell them to keep in mind that they you were hired because you're intelligent and you were hired because you think differently than the people who you're on a team with, not because you think the exact same way. And it can be intimidating when you join a big firm, especially or any firm, because you're surrounded by really intelligent, successful, experienced attorneys. And not to be intimidated by that because while you need to learn from them and there's plenty to learn, they didn't hire you to think just like them. And they hired you to compliment them and because you have different strengths. So while you do need to learn the fundamentals and there's no shortcut to doing that, there are just certain skills that whether or not you're in corporate or litigation, it'll depend on what group you're in, but there are fundamentals and, and you need to be competent in those. There are also things that you are specifically going to be exceptional at and to look for those things and to be able to look for opportunities where you can play to your strengths and you can show those strengths and not to be afraid to speak up and to offer value in those ways. And my experience has been that people are really welcoming to that. And even if you're wrong, then you get a great mentorship moment and people have been really graceful about that. So it's, it it really is. I think the only downside is if you keep things to yourself and you don't take some of those risks, especially as you're starting out as a junior associate, they know you don't know everything. And so that gives you some freedom to be able to express different ideas and strategies and different ways of doing things with that kind of comfort zone and with that opportunity to be developed and mentored. That is fantastic advice. My final, final question for you is if people have questions or want to reach out, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for being on the show. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 